0: So have you ever said anything that you wished you could take back? Uh, I remember being at a conference, and if you've ever been to a conference where they give you like a bag full of stuff, swag, stuff we all get... Has lots of free giveaways in there, probably stuff that's just branded and marketed for advertisers and partners and supporters of whatever conference you're at. And I remember being at this conference, and in the swag bag was a book. And I pulled the book out and I looked at it, and I was surprised because the author was somebody that I knew, but was surprised that person had written a book. You probably can think about people in your life, you'd be surprised if they wrote a book. And I turned to my friend beside me and I said, this guy wrote a book. I guess anybody can write a book. And then I turned the other way. And that guy was standing right beside me. And I wish I could have taken those words back. And those words did not represent who I want to be. And today we're going to see a story in Mark chapter 10 where two disciples say something to Jesus that they surely, surely end up wishing they could take back and does not represent ultimately who they want to be or who Jesus calls them to be. So let's turn in Mark chapter 10. If you're a guest with us and you don't have one of these journal Bibles and you'd like one, raise your hand and usher would we'll be glad to drop one off for you um, Glad you're here with us if you're a guest for sure. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So pause there. <laughs> Jesus had what you might call an inner circle. There were 12 disciples, but three Peter, James, and John, he was particularly close with. So it's not unusual that James and John might approach him sort of uniquely or discreetly in this moment. So James and John came up to Jesus and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? It's a pretty valid question to ask in return. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So pause right there. So the disciples have been going with Jesus for a few years now, walking around the Judean countryside. Jesus has been healing and performing miracles and teaching and gathering a following, and they believed that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem And that he would establish a new Israel. He would be a new king who would establish a new kingdom, a new rule for God's people in Jerusalem. Well, at this point, chronologically in the story, they've started to go towards Jerusalem. And so these disciples are thinking, oh, it's coming. It's about to happen. Like there's this excitement in the air. And James and John, they go to Jesus because they want to say, hey, When you declare yourself king, can we have like top rank? Can we, is it cool if we serve right there alongside of you? Or can we be better than these other disciples? Right? So they're asking Jesus for authority to sit at his right and his left when he brings his kingdom. So here's what Jesus says to them in return in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. It's off to a good start. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. It's a very confident response. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, and when the ten, when the other disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They were not happy about James and John's question. So let's pause right there. Let's circle in the text, if you would, let's circle the words cup and baptism. Let's circle the words cup and baptism uh, because when Jesus is baptized, it's so that he identifies with broken humans, that he identifies with the people of Israel. And so baptism means to identify with something. In the ancient ancient world, to drink from a cup with someone meant that you would share in something with them or that you would have an experience in common. And so Jesus says, if you want to be a part of my kingdom and my leadership and this new thing that I'm going to do in the world, you have to do what I do and go where I go, and you will experience what I experience. And so if we're going to do what Jesus does and go where Jesus goes, that means that for us to call Jesus a servant is to be reminded We are called to serve, that if he is a servant, we identify with him as a servant. If we're going to follow Jesus and be in his kingdom, then we must learn what it looks like to be like the leader, the ruler of the kingdom. And what does it look like to be like Jesus? He goes on to make that clear. Let's pick back up in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, so the Gentiles, anybody who's not Jewish, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I can think of a couple of different moments in my own journey as a leader where I was promoted to leadership. I was given some authority and I made the mistake of believing that I had been given authority to show others how worthy I was of having authority. And I can remember being way, way, way out ahead of everyone else and looking around like, where is everybody? Because I had lived and led as if the point of being a leader was to show how good I was at leading and to show others how many good ideas I could come up with and how many problems I can solve and why I was worthy of being a leader and that everyone else's job was just to keep up with me. I acted as if I had been given authority So that others could see how successful I could be, rather than being given authority so that I could help others succeed themselves. So think about the people you follow. Think about the people others follow in our world, whether it's social media influencers or news talking heads and pundits or celebrities or sports stars. I mean, who do people follow? In this world, and are they primarily looking to serve you, or are they primarily looking for you to serve them and to serve their agendas? And that's the model of leadership we're often given in the world. That's what Jesus says. But instead of being selfish and self serving with our influence, we are actually called to be sacrificial with our influence. That Jesus flips the script on what it means to be to be an authority to be a leader to have influence and we all have influence writer Andy Crouch says leadership does not begin with title or position it begins the moment you are more concerned about others flourishing than your own we weren't created to chase power to chase authority to chase rule over others. We were created to give our lives away for the sake of others, the way Jesus gives his life away for our sake. So let's underline the phrase in the text, son of man. Underline the phrase, son of man. I said a few weeks ago that this phrase, the Son of Man, is an Old Testament phrase from the book of Daniel, but it's Jesus's like, go-to self-designation, that when Jesus wants to talk about what he's doing and how it connects to what God's doing in the world, he calls himself Son of Man. And he says the Son of Man ransoms his life. So underneath the word ransom in the text, let's write the phrase, the price paid for freedom that ransom means the price paid for freedom that Jesus gives his life to pay the price for our freedom in the old testament the prophet isaiah when talking about the day when jesus would come says but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. See, Jesus serves us in his death, and his death heals us, and therefore his death sets us free to serve others because it sets us free from our sins. Theologian Miroslav Volf says, the significance of the crucifixion is not only what God does for us, But consistently throughout the New Testament, the crucifixion is portrayed as the pattern that we are to follow. It is a model of social behavior toward the other, as well as a statement about what God has done for us. He's saying that if Jesus is our Savior, then that means he's also our servant. And to call him a servant means that we... Are also called to serve. I find it absolutely beautiful that John, one of the two disciples that asked Jesus this absolutely boneheaded question, goes on to write these words This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. And sisters. We know love because Jesus laid his life down. And others might know the love of Jesus because of how we lay our lives down. There was an early church leader named Polycarp. It's a great name, Polycarp. Polycarp. Uh, lived in the middle of the first century through the early part of the second century. He's best known for having been the bishop of Smyrna in modern-day Turkey. He played a crucial role in some of the theological developments of the early church. But perhaps his greatest contribution is his willingness to be a martyr, to die for his faith, He was actually the first recorded martyr after the chronological end of the New Testament. So the first early Christian after the New Testament to die for his faith. But the way he died, or the reason he died, actually is why I bring him up. There had been another Christian, a young, excited, zealous Christian. Jesus follower who wanted to prove how much he loved Jesus and was willing to die for his faith. Not Polycarp, another person. And that person wanted to be a hero for Jesus. And at the very last moment, when he was about to be martyred for his faith, he backed out. He said, No, wait, hold on. I don't think so. And it was so traumatizing for the early church to watch somebody walk so close to sacrificing their life than just to go, no, I don't believe this. And so there was a lot of turmoil and confusion. And so Polycarp committed that he would demonstrate to the early Christians what it looked like to die on behalf of Jesus. And so in his 80s, he graciously and joyfully was led to his death, because he refused to let go of the name of Jesus. Then in his death, he served other Christians to show them not just how to live, but even how to sacrifice their lives for the sake of Jesus. Even his death served others. Early church scholar and professor Justin Buell, who's also a CPC member, said that when modern Americans ask ourselves a question like, what would Jesus do? We're inevitably asking a question about how Jesus would live. But early Christians were just as taken by the question of how would Jesus die? And what does that mean about how I should die? What does it look like to serve others and to put others first, even to the point where it hurts, even to the point where it costs us everything. What I love about these early disciples is they made so many mistakes. In the pages of Scripture and early history, they made so many mistakes in following Jesus. And yet, what I think is amazing is that history also tells us that they took these words of Jesus and they gave it a shot. They put it into practice. They weren't afraid, and it cost them. Many of them suffered. Some of them died. They sacrificed their lives. It wasn't always easy or pretty, but they found that there was no better way to spend their life than serving the risen Son of Man, the Savior. Because here's what they saw, and here's what we need to see. When, When we try putting others first, no matter what it costs us, we end up having our faith transformed. Our faith is transformed when we put others first. So I want to challenge you. What does it look like for you to put others first and for God to do something in your life? Who is God calling you to serve? And how can you start today? How can you start this week? How can you use your resources to help others? And the point is not just to do like a good deed a day. The point is to become servants as a way of life. But we have to start somewhere. We have to start somewhere by intentionally serving others and putting others first in our classrooms, in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our sports teams, in our workplaces. What does it look like to put others first in the hope? That as we do so, serving becomes a way of life. Pastor Andy Stanley calls it racing to the back of the line. Just like the early disciples, when we follow the greatest servant of all, he wants to use our lives to serve others. If life isn't quite what you hoped it would be, what you expected, what you want. Maybe it's because you're holding back something that God is calling you to use for the sake of others. I grew up about a mile downriver from the West Point Dam on the Chattahoochee River. Yes, that Chattahoochee River. So there's a picture of it. The reason I thought this Dam was helpful. Was you can see it has the gates that raise and go up, and it's it's not nearly as large or majestic as some of the dams on the Mississippi. But I I have some nostalgia for it. I have ridden a ridden a wave runner or two close to that dam, and you can see the water rushing through the gates, right? Because a dam is a very simple mechanism. It's supposed to regulate the flow of water. It pulls up water on one side, and then it lets water rush through to make electricity or do whatever else it does, right? It pulls up water, and then, it, and then the gates raise, and it lets it rush through. Is it possible that Jesus has done something for us, and we're letting it pull up on one side? We're letting it pull up, and every time we serve, we're raising a gate And the grace of Jesus is rushing out into the world. Every time we serve, maybe you're letting what God has done in your life pull up and you're not raising the gate and letting it rush out and do what it's supposed to do by serving others. And imagine, imagine a church, imagine a church full of people like gates in a dam. And when one person raises the gate and the water rushes through, it's amazing. And when a second person raises the gate, oh, it's beautiful. But imagine person after person after person and the water and the grace of Jesus just flooding and rushing into the world as a church of servants makes the love and grace of Jesus known as we raise the gates and we take what God has done in our lives and we share it with others through serving. It's what we're made for. We follow a servant. A servant who gave his life for us. That we might learn that when we give our lives, when we lay our lives down, Jesus gives it back and we find a life more refreshing and more rewarding and more full than we could ever achieve on our own. Let's learn what it looks like to follow our Savior to serve others, and to lay our lives down. Amen?